Hello and welcome to Bird Curious, a podcast in which we talk about birds. Each episode we're going to be talking about a particular species, what makes it special and how to spot one. And we'll also be sharing thoughts on birdwatching tips, as well as exploring some of the science and history of birds and birders from the UK and around the world. We're two sisters in lockdown London, so for the first six episodes we're going to be starting off with some birds that it's still relatively possible to see during lockdown, even if you live in a city. And this week we'll be kicking off with one of my favourites, the goldfinch. Let's get started. Sarchet. And I'm Joe Sarchet. We're recording this from our homes on a sunny lockdown weekend, so I have to ask, seen any good birds lately? Um, you know what, it's not been that bad on my daily exercise walks. Um, I have seen a lot more woodpeckers than I normally do this year. Um, I think I caught a gold crest the other day, uh, but you know they move so fast it can be hard to tell. How about you? Um, yeah, I, I had the exactly the same thing where I saw kind of movement in a bush and I was like, oh, that looked like a sort of gold crest size movement, but I couldn't really see the bird properly when I was out running. Um, like you as well, I've seen a lot more woodpeckers. I saw two in um, in a row, like not the same one, and that was great spotted. And I've also seen a green woodpecker. Um, so I don't know if the numbers are up this year or if it being kind of quieter, like us being out earlier maybe, I don't know. I, yeah, I think it's all of the, um, well, all of the second two. I think um, I've never been able to hear them from my patio before, and I can now. And also, I don't think since, like, teenagehood I've ever done this many walks this, uh, in the spring. So, mm, yeah. yeah. I tell you what, though, since we've been on lockdown, I think the happiest I've been when seeing a bird was um, one morning I saw a goldfinch sat on the railings just outside my, my flat. And I've never seen that before. I live in quite an urban area. I had no idea they were in the area so that was really exciting a fitting bird of the show then so why don't you run down the goldfinch's vital statistics um well i'm not going to get sexist about their hips and <laughs> and everything. um but um they're a small bird small beautiful bird red white and black head and they um they're often you can kind of notice them by their gold wing bars and um, which really like shimmer in the sunlight when they um when they fly around the males and females look similar it's not one of those um species where the female is just brown and the man man is really impressive it's um they 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 both have that same red white and black head gold wing bars but the i i only found this out recently but the males they their kind of red masks on their faces extend back a bit beyond the eyes a bit oh, further than one. So if you're like really staring at one, I think that's how you'd be able to tell them apart. If but... you're desperate to know the sex of a goldfinch, <laughs> yeah. that's how you find out. <laughs> Which raises other questions, doesn't it? But um... <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's apparently how you find out. And recently, fledged birds don't have that, so they look a lot more normal in the face. What? What? They don't have the the red colouring on the the cheek. Yeah, they don't have the exactly. They don't have the red, white, and black head. So they've kind of got like a normal plain head, but they still got kind of gold on their wings. Um, and also they're really they're really small so they um they weigh between 14 and 19 grams and you kind of notice that if you see them sometimes on a long stalked plant that they like barely tip it over Um, yeah beautiful and and they're seen generally in places where you get like bushes trees rough ground thistles and at the moment there's a a lot of them in the uk there's apparently 1.2 million breeding pairs wow Um, especially especially high numbers in southern england as well 
Right, so not that surprising that I'm seeing them more often. I do remember the first time that I can really remember seeing and appreciating goldfinches was on a bird watching trip a very long time ago at RSPB Minsmere, the nature reserve. And um, I think it was it was quite a dull day, maybe in spring, and suddenly this kind of group of them just flew across the like um, the shrubland on the dunes there by the coast, and um, they do that thing when they're flying where like the light catches all the gold bars slightly at slightly different times. Then they all sat sat in a, a I guess it would have been teasel, um, and all started singing, and it's such a lovely song, and that really charmed me. Like I, I, they are lovely. Yeah, that felt like quite a special sighting at the time but it's become a lot easier to see goldfinches over the past 20 years or so Mm. Um, that's because they've become a common bird to see in gardens according to the british trust for ornithology the bird is seen in as many as 70 percent of gardens now which surprised me that's really high isn't it and it came in at number six in the rspb's big garden birdwatch sightings this year it's amazing when you can actually in your own lifetime be like oh i've actually I, I feel like anecdotally on in my life I've seen them more and also the statistics reflect that as well. And um, very rare in this time when obviously most birds are really um, suffering so you, you see less not, not more of, of most species. Um, interestingly to get to the bottom of why so many goldfinches are now turning up in gardens the BTO did a feeding survey um, over the sort of winter of 2015-16 And they found that while goldfinches do eat their traditional foods in gardens, so that's things like teasels and thistles, their favourite food in gardens by far are sunflower hearts and niger seed, both of which are seeds that people put out at bird feeders. The implication there is that the menu at our bird feeders is is probably what's really driven this big increase in goldfinch numbers in gardens. Mm. I also saw a thing about how maybe diversification of feeders themselves like ones having perches and things which is like makes it easier for them to feed whereas it used to be more traditional like a nut nut kind of feeders and stuff oh that's interesting to think of yeah little tweaks to designs for bird feeders can can really actually shape populations yeah so because of that if you're really keen to see goldfinches i would say putting out sunflower hearts in your garden if you have one is probably the easiest way to start but it's worth saying that if you do choose to have a garden feeding station you need to clean it regularly to avoid some really nasty diseases spreading among birds and both the rspb and the bto have tips on their websites about how you can do that but if you don't have a garden or you want to spot them out on walks I I have to say I tend to hear them before I see them you you hear them flying past and Mm. it's really distinctive and and you sort of look around and wait for them to land yeah like their song is very kind of it matches their their look in a way it's very kind of metallic and beautiful and um so um when you hear it you you kind of plug in and think oh is that a goldfinch yeah it's lovely i managed to record this little clip of one singing recently oh that's so nice like they've got that really i've seen it described as like a bubbling or a liquid sort of song yeah it's it compared to some birds it's quite unpredictable isn't it and it just keeps changing it's very melodic and exuberant i'd say i'm not i'm not very good at recognizing different kind of bird songs and i I think some bird songs have a sort of pattern or a rhythm that you recognize but i feel like with goldfinches it's very much the actual quality of their voice Mm. can we just hear that clip again so we can listen out for that voice really nice Mm. um and because of that um kind of distinctive voice and their distinctive plumage they were really popular as caged birds in the 19th century 
Um, so there was there was quite a lot of live trapping and that put a strain on their numbers. Um, thankfully, that's now banned in um, Britain and Ireland. Yeah, you sometimes see in um, like old school uh, paintings in art galleries, um, it seemed to be all the rage to have like a, a caged goldfinch. It's so sad. Mm. You know the Donna Tartt novel, The Goldfinch? That's actually based on on um, like a 17th century Dutch painting of a goldfinch. Mm. Oh, and you know earlier you were saying they like feeding from thistles and teasels sort of traditionally. Mm. It's fun that the... I have no idea how to speak Anglo-Saxon, but the Anglo-Saxon name for the goldfinch was Thisteltweeger or something like that. <laughs> I don't know how how exactly you'd say that, but it basically means thistle twe- thistle tweaker. Oh, that's amazing! And it's really fun because the they're apparently the only UK finch that have the right beaks to extract seeds from the really narrow seed heads of teasels. So, um, so they're like teasel experts. And um, the thing that I find really weird is apparently the female goldfinches, which remember you can now identify by their slightly <laughs> shorter mask. Um, this, the female goldfinches apparently find it difficult to eat from teasels because their beaks are just slightly shorter. So they have to maybe stick to thistles and things a bit more. Right. So that's another way to tell their genders apart if you really have to tell <laughs> yeah. the sex of your goldfinches. Yeah. yeah, that would be interesting to hear if anyone's, if this has been a real bugbear of anyone's and we've managed to solve <laughs> that today. Yeah. The other thing that probably is worth mentioning with goldfinches is quite appropriately, they refer, a group of goldfinches is referred to collectively as a charm. Um, but collective names, I do feel like, can be a bit of a slippery slope and maybe to be taken with a pinch of salt yeah this is one of your bugbears you want to talk me through (laughs) why you hate collective names so much well i remember reading a thing where they actually went round ornithologists and were like do you talk about them as a parliament of owls do you you know like and they went around asking everyone murder and they went no yeah and then the the kind of what this person was saying was if if the experts in the area aren't using these and often these collective nouns are things that don't even go around in groups (laughs) so so it becomes a bit of a like a sort of an after dinner sort of fact um rather than something that's that useful but i think goldfinches i think is fair enough because i think it actually is quite widely used and they are really charming so it's pretty it's pretty fitting right yeah and they're they're, they're sociable so it's not like i think so, some of these things are weirder because you're like fine that's what you'd call a group of bitterns but when have you ever seen a group of bitterns and well yeah the, like the parliament of owls it's very yeah. rare that you actually see loads of owls hanging out together no and they never make big political decisions <laughs> <laughs> anyway i'm registry of misgivings there but i'm still going to call a, a group of goldfinches a charm it just feels appropriate and all in all a bird worth celebrating now it's time for our birder hall of fame a collection of remarkable bird lovers throughout history so, Joe, who are you putting in as our first ever Hall of Fame entrant? So, for the first show, I wanted to look at someone who really kicked things off in terms of British birding. Um, to give a bit of context, there was this huge trend for plumage in fashion, especially on hats in the late Victorian times, to the extent that even whole birds were sometimes used on hats, or just sometimes bird heads, which is kind of... Ew. Um, so... Thousands of birds were being killed and it was a trade that was worth millions, I think even billions in today's terms. So how long ago are we talking here? Um, Victorian times and it was really coming to quite like a nasty peak in the late um, Victorian era. This is where the birder that I'd like to put forward for the um, 
better Hall of Fame this show comes in. So she was a woman called Emily Williamson, who in her 30s founded the Society for the Protection of Birds at her home in Didsbury, Manchester. So that was in 1889. And at first it was an all-female society and women had to pledge to not wear the feathers of any bird unless it had been killed for food or was an ostrich. <laughs> why, why were you allowed to wear ostrich feathers? <laughs> they didn't just have it in for ostriches. The idea was that you don't have to kill ostriches to obtain their feathers. Um, so it was seen as a less cruel practice. One of the birds that Williamson was really worried about was the great crested grebe, um, which we have in the UK. But it was being almost driven to extinction because of its ornate head plumes, which were really popular with um, hat makers. Mm, nice colour, aren't they? That sort of reddy brown. Yeah, yeah. And it's ironically, their hats were making that people want to use them for our hats and like <laughs> loads of exotic birds like, um, you know, hummingbirds and all sorts were being used, but also native um, British birds. Um, in 1891, the Society for the Protection of Birds, which Emily Williamson had founded, merged with the Fur, Fin and Feather Folk, um, who were based in Croydon. It's a, lo- it's a great name, isn't it? They were based it's in lovely. Croydon. And they, um, they, that was also founded and led by women, also concerned about this whole um, cruel plumage trade issue, um, like especially... Um, active and in founding and running this were Eliza Phillips and Etta Lemon who are more kind of big bird figures slightly um, forgotten by history and then the Society for the Protection of Birds was granted the Royal Charter in 1904 becoming the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds or the RSPB. So um, what did they do at first then when it was first formed? At first, I mean, they were doing a lot to raise awareness of what was being called murderous millinery, um, this kind of cruel hat-making trade, and they distributed leaflets, they published a journal. I think one of the most interesting tactics is Etta Lemon, who wrote, she wrote letters to women she had seen wearing um, feathered hats in church. So it was kind of a very personalised approach, like, you need to stop doing this. Because I think there was a sense that women were doing this, they were just kind of following fashion without really knowing what cruelty was behind it. And they also started like lobbying the Church of England because church services were seen as a real kind of fashion show for these hats. And so were they successful with this? I think generally they managed to change public opinion and there was the big um, the big kind of success for them was having an act in 1921 um, passed that banned plumage from being imported to Britain. So that was like a big kind of moment for them. And I mean, we can tell now by the fact that people don't walk around with these kind of outlandish hats that they made a big difference. And also by the fact that the great crested grebe can be seen in the UK today and isn't it isn't really that rare a bird. Like you, you would expect to see one when you're at a marsh or a, a lake. Mm. And that's, um, that's thanks to Emily Williamson and her society's efforts. There's um, 4,600 breeding pairs in the UK. So a, a lot fewer than goldfinches, but, you know, definitely... They're definitely still around. Oh, thanks, Emily Williamson. And then today, the RSPB is the largest wildlife conservation charity in Europe. It has over a million members, so more than any political party in the UK. Yeah, the RSPB is, is so huge and, and really internationally renowned as well. Um, it's interesting to find out how it all started. Yeah, well, um, Emily Williamson, Eliza Phillips and Etta Lemon were all pretty much forgotten by history until very recently and almost anything you can find out about them is from the research of the writer Tessa Bowes who recently published a book that looks into some of this called Mrs Pankhurst's Purple Feather Add that and the goldfinch to the lockdown reading list Next up it's time to talk birding essentials 
Penny, you wanted to kick things off by talking about bird books. Yeah, I was thinking about bird books because I felt for me that really getting my first one was something of a landmark moment. Um, when you're first getting interested in birds, to suddenly have a manual to help you figure out what you're seeing and learn about those rarer birds that you're yet to spot seems like quite a big step. Can you remember getting your first guide? Yeah, but I think I was a bit of a younger sister rebellion thing, I think, because you already had a more sensible seeming one. I had to be a bit different and got like a weird like key where you have to like answer <laughs> questions to find out what you've seen a bit like in a kind of teenage magazine with a personality test or something. So it, yeah. it definitely wasn't the most useful but it's quite fun. Yeah, keys um, keys are fun, aren't they? They're like a quiz. Um, mm. It's like a what bird are you quiz and they'll, they'll gradually steer you in the right direction. Yeah. They're not actually that very, they're not very useful as like a reference work, are they? But when you have like a proper bird book and you already have quite a good knowledge of birds, you're like, oh, is it this or this? And you can go and find it. Whereas a key, you can start with absolutely no knowledge to just be like, what colour is it? And it will help you narrow it down. That's true. Yeah, for sure. Um, so mine was a little pocket guide uh, that I spent my pocket money on um, and I've still got it actually it's um, it's not hugely extensive but it's light and it's small and um, I take it with me to um, if I'm going to see loads of waders um, and those kinds of birds I always forget like the basic difference between a bar-tailed and a black-tailed godwit so we this little book it's it's not the best in the world by any means but it always helps me remember those um but what do you use when you're out and about and you're not sure what you've seen i think to be honest recently that's happened not when i'm kind of actually on a burning trip it's happened if i'm like at a wedding or something and i don't have binoculars or books to hand then i find it useful to just uh, go onto something like the rspb website on my phone and they have a really clear um, bird A to Z with good um, illustrations and kind of details about the ranges of birds and I find that's useful in just having a, a quick look it feels like looking at bird book would be nicer but often you see unexpected things at unexpected times don't you mm. uh, the internet's really useful I, I, I definitely use it especially if I see birds abroad um, but I have to say I, I think books are still useful for really actually teaching that that sort of reference work when you're learning and just learning even the different kinds of birds and which ones look like each other and that, I'm, I'm not sure that can be beat but I, I do remember um do you remember that cd-rom quiz we used to have yeah um I've never been so good at bird identification as when we used to like compete on that. I kind of wish I still had it now because I could really do with um, sharpening up some of my uh, some of my identification skills. I remember getting quite competitive about it and I don't know if we'd be as good at it now because it was quite a repetitive game where it sort of flashed up a bird and you had to say what it was. Um, but I think that sort of rote learning was a really good um, foundation. I think there is a bit of that with birds. I think people can be put off because they're like, oh, I don't want to have to sit and just wrote lumbers but I think learning the names of birds that you're seeing quite often like looking them up and then kind of learning them as you go and the more the more far-flung places you go to look at the birds and the more birds you see just adding that I think that's also a like legit way of just learning it without having to kind of do rote learning in an intense way. yeah definitely yeah I would say if you're starting out as a bird watcher I would recommend getting a bird book really because it, it's great to be able to look something up and yeah read about a bird often the notes are really useful because it, until you really know what's common you can look at a thing and say yeah I swear it's that and you would have no idea that it's only ever in the UK in the summer and mm. then only in Scotland or something yeah so bird books really useful I would recommend getting something in paperback so it's not too heavy to carry it around 
and also not getting something too extensive in the first instance because some some lovely books are, are very extensive they've got lots of like rarities or things that are more common on the continent but occasionally crop up in the UK and that can all be a bit distracting and unnecessary when you're first getting started mm. um I, I don't know what you think about this Joe, but I generally find that illustrations tend to be much better than photo guides because the illustrations kind of show you the idealized version mm. whereas the birds sometimes don't quite it's not quite the right angle or the lighting's yeah. a bit funny in a photo yeah I think that's right I think maybe it's the lighting like it in a photo you kind of notice certain things but not everything whereas an illustration shows you like oh you'll have that detail on the wing that detail on this so you can kind of look for the bit that you really saw on the bird like oh I definitely saw a white stripe on the wing which a photo might not capture maybe mm, yeah true so um no bird books on your shelf at the moment yeah no I mean a lot of birds that I come across I'll kind of be able to identify and then if I'm in a situation like the godwit situation that you mentioned I'd hope to be with either someone who um knows the difference or has a book or also sometimes in hides and stuff you can actually get people who are quite like that's this and then I'm like okay that's cool um so I've been kind of busking it um but maybe you know maybe I've been sailing a bit close to the wind who knows Finally, it's time for Bird Spurious, a dose of trivia with a tenuous link to birding. Do you know, Penny, what the currency of Guatemala is by any chance? No, not at all. It's the Quetzal. And do you know why I'm bringing that up? Yeah, I think it's a type of bird. Something's ringing a bell here, but I can't really remember what the connection is. Yeah, exactly. So their currency is the Quetzal, but the Quetzal is actually um, a bird belonging to the Trogon family. The resplendent Quetzal is a gorgeous bird, definitely worth looking up online. The pictures, it's just amazing to look at. Um, It lives in the cloud forests of Central America and it's the national emblem of Guatemala and even features on its flag. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's it's a really gorgeous bird. So Quetzal as a word for currency is to do with how um, valuable the tail feathers of the Quetzals were in Mayan culture. they were worn in headdresses of uh, cheetahs and things like that. Um, but following up on our discussion of the plumage trade earlier, you'll be relieved to know that these were removed without killing the birds because the birds were considered sacred. So if you killed one, um, the penalty would be death. Right, so lesson learned. Do not kill a quetzal. Thanks, Joe. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Bird Curious. The show is written and produced by us, Penny and Joe Sarchet. Our music is by Chris Warrington, and our artwork is by Elizabeth Querstrut. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BirdCuriousPod. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of in the show, and we'd love to see pictures of any goldfinches or anything else interesting you spot in your gardens or from your windows during lockdown. Also, if you have some trivia with a tenuous link to birds that you'd like to suggest for our Bird Spurious segment, definitely tweet us, again, at BirdCuriousPod. And please do recommend the show to any friends you think might also be bird curious. You can subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. 